This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. It's been a month since the assassination of former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. The shooting came as a shock for many reasons, primarily because Japan is considered one of the safest countries in the world and one where gun violence especially is very much unheard of in modern times. So what more used against a prominent political figure? So what has been the socio-political fallout of his assassination? I'm Darshan Johan and this is Today I Learned. On the show with me today is Aaron Dennison. He's, the doc- he's a doctoral candidate at Hiroshima University. He's also an Asian political commentator. Welcome to the show, Aaron. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Now, Aaron, it's been a month since uh, Shin- Shinzo Abe's shooting and, and death. What is the significance of his death? So there are a few things um, that have sort of come to light. Uh, number one is there's been debate about gun violence itself because and security. So why wasn't the security tight on Abe? Um, why was the, the reaction late? Because after, it, I mean, it was two shots. So even after the first shot was fired, people were still looking around. The securities weren't sure what was happening. But then in, in Japan itself, there's always a clash between the politicians and the police. The police would say that, or the security forces would say, that, oh, you have to be careful, uh, we have to secure you. But the politicians, oh, no, I have to reach out to my people, I have to be close to them, that's how I gain political influence and things like that. So um, that is one of the reasons um, why there has always been a difficult relationship between police and security and um, the politicians. It was also demonstrated during um, in Abe's speech in Nara when there wasn't much of a security presence because there wasn't a reason to normally do that. Um, so this is like like one in a million, you know. And in terms of politics, right? So now there's a debate over the relationship between politics and religion in Japan. So um, although uh, people know that um, like LDP's um, partner, um, I mean coalition partner, uh, Komento is a Sokagakai-based Buddhist party. So people know that there is a relationship between politics and religion. But now the question is how deep is the relationship uh, between politics um, and religion? So with the issue of the unification church, with Abe being allegedly part of it, uh, with the former chairman of the Unification Church revealing that Abe's grandfather um, like allegedly had a close relationship with the founder of the Unification Church. So, I mean, these raise a lot of questions. So I'm quite cautious with these points because I'm using the word, I'm using words like alleged because we don't know if Abe or his grandfather was ever involved. But this has raised a debate um, about um, politics and religion in the country. It's not looking so good for Abe, to be honest, because recently the defense minister, which is actually Abe's younger brother, admitted that he had received help from the Unification Church, volunteers during elections. He also mentioned that he will be reviewing his relationship with the church. So now this raises a whole new debate about ties between um, not only Abe, but also other LDP lawmakers and other lawmakers in general uh, with the church and other religious um, organizations. Aaron, I'm wondering, is all of this coming as a major shock to the Japanese people? Um, you know, and, and what is the significance of this? Because if you say, like, let's say Abe's family um, has been had, allegedly had ties to the church and all of that, what does that mean? Why is that important to know? 
it, it's not sort of a shock. Like I said, uh, people know that there is, um, like I said just now, there is a relationship. A re- there is a relationship between religion and politics. But now, to what extent? How deep is this relationship? I mean, are they paying money? Um, are, are the church funding these politicians? Right. So these are the things that are not clear because political funding in Japan has always been, um, I would say, um, open out there. So because you know, I mean, political funding is provided by the state uh, to the political parties, depending on the number of members you have, depending on the number of seats that you had during the previous election. So that's, uh, it has always been on the open. But now this is, raises a whole new question, whether who, were these lawmakers uh, funded by these religious organizations. So that's the biggest question now um, that is happening at the moment right. in Japan. Let's go back to the very beginning. Who exactly is Shinzo Abe? For people who may, who have absolutely no clue, when did he kickstart his political career? Well, Shinzo Abe is a third generation lawmaker. His grandfather, Nobusuke Kishi, was a wartime minister. He was the former prime minister as well between 1957 to 1960. Um, even his father, Abe Shintaro, um, was the former minister of agriculture and forestry, minister of, minister of international trade and industry, as well as the foreign minister. So he was from a prominent um, political family um, and was definitely exposed to the works of his grandfather um, and his father. Abe started his career as an MP in 1993, after the death of his father two years before. So he basically inherited his father's seat, um, came to power, and then rose uh, up the party ranks. Um, so he basically, he held all the positions that you are required to, that you are required to sit in uh, before becoming the president. Um, and I would say that he was quite privileged as well because, I mean, your grandfather was a former prime Prime Minister. I mean, your father was a former foreign minister. So he was quite privileged in that sense. So he became the LDP president and prime minister, first time around at least, in 2006, um, before resigning after only one year in office as a result of an illness. And you might have thought that, well, that's it. His political career is over. But he made a political comeback um, in 2012, defeating f- former Defence Minister Shigeru Ishiba to become the LDP president in 2012, before eventually guiding LDP to a landslide victory at the 2012 lower house elections, and thus completing the comeback of all comebacks, um, becoming the prime minister for the second time. Now, what's in- also interesting is that Shinzo Abe was the first Japanese prime minister was born after World War II. Um, I'm wondering, Aaron, if that shaped his worldviews. How different or same were his socio-political views compared to his predecessors, including his family members? His worldview was mostly influenced by his grandfather and also his father to a certain extent, but more his grandfather. So Kishi Nobusuke was from like the anti-mainstream faction within the LDP. So that is because he was from the Democratic Party. So the Liberal Party are sort of the mainstream faction. And the anti-mainstream faction was basically a group that was pushing for Japan to have a different kind of foreign policy uh, that is more assertive, that wanted to defeat the constitution, removing restrictions so that Japan would become a great power. And his grandfather actually sort of revised the US-Japan Security Treaty in 1960 to sort of make it stronger, where he basically signed up for the Cold War. 
whereby he allowed for American bases to be stationed in Japan, more American bases to be stationed in Japan. So this was something what um, the Liberal Party was um, under Yoshida was reluctant to do because for Yoshida, he was comfortable with the Americans doing everything and handling all the military capabilities while he was just he was just happy to run the economy. But Kishi Nobusuke, on the other hand, he wanted to strengthen um, the Japanese self-defense forces alongside the American troops. So this revision of the security treaties um, allowed the U.S. to have more military bases in Japan and sort of put Japan on the equal footing uh, with the U.S. But the issue at that time was the fact that Japan had signed on for another war, which is like a proxy war, a Cold War, was not so much popular among the Japanese public, um, as well as within um, the LDP as well. Um, Because while Kishi wanted to ratify and revise the treaty as soon as possible, um, a lot of the Japanese public weren't happy because they they just came out of the war and you're signing up for another war again. Um, So they weren't uh, very keen. but Kishi was pushing for it because um, apparently at that time, President Eisenhower was due to visit Japan in June 1960. And with that in mind, Kishi called for an immediate vote in the Japanese diet for the revision of the US-Japan Security Treaty. And there were commotions. There was a large protest looming and many, many, many people uh, basically um, were protesting uh, in front of the Japanese diet to an extent um, that Kishi had to basically bulldoze through the voting process in the Japanese diet, and he eventually did it, but um, it, it was just too much. Even within his party, they were already advising him to sort of, you know, you, you should step down because this was already getting out of hand. So he eventually stepped down as prime minister in July 1960. So Abe saw all this, um, he read about all this, and he was... I would say he was resentful of how people or how LDP lawmakers treated his grandfather because for him, his grandfather was on the right side of history, meaning supporting the US, supporting the United States, being at the right side of the Cold War, but yet um, people were treating him that way. So Abe based his ideology on um, sort of like, um, again, continuing his grandfather's legacy. Uh, which is, again, defeating the constitution, making sure that Japan has an independent military. And it sort of of skipped a generation because Abe Shintaro, which was his father, wasn't as committed um, to Kishi's mission as Abe was. So it sort of like skipped a generation, like, okay, there was a break, and then Abe is now doing, was doing everything that his grandfather wanted. So Abe entered the political scene in 1990s, not as an MP yet, but as a party member. And that was like at the end of the Cold War. And he and a few other young Turks, uh, conservatives, young young conservatives that joined the party during this time, saw that Japan was going through a rough patch during the end of the Cold War, uh, with scandals within the party, poor decision-making, uh, especially in regards to the Gulf War. And this was all observed by the young Abe at that time. So he wanted to change that. He wanted a Japan that was more confident in making difficult decisions instead of playing the long game, not sure. And and he had an ambition um, of basically resetting Japan and to not look back at history. So that was what 
um, his worldview was basically, I mean, getting back, at, getting Japan to where to his glory days, and that was what also his grandfather wanted. Right, and Aaron Shinzo Abe always said that he wanted to make Japan a quote unquote normal country. What does that mean exactly? The the, the notion normal country. So it starts with the Japanese constitution. Okay. Um, which was adapted in 1947 after World War II. And it was largely drafted by the United States that occupied Japan at the time. And one of the provisions that has become the topic of discussion for many years is Article 9. I've been mentioning Article 9, like I don't know how many times in this conversation. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what is Article 9? So Article 9 uh, of the Constitution basically forbids Japan from having a military or getting involved in wars to resolve international disputes. First, the Japanese government has interpreted um, this article to mean that Japan could have an army for self-defense, but not offense. So in, if it's attacked, then it can use its uh, army. But if, it's, uh, if for example, uh, like there is an like, infringement of waters um, by a naval ship, then it cannot release its army because it's, it's not... Uh, they're not feeling attacked yet. So it's it's very difficult when you talk about Article 9. So Shinzo Abe and his grandfather, uh, Nobusuke Kishi, had the opinion that Article 9 was limiting Japan's ability to become a great power or to participate in global affairs. And it for them, it also held back Japan as a second-rate power. So not a normal country. So th- there was a, they were a second-rate power, second second-class power. So this debate about Japan being a normal or an abnormal country began at the end of the Cold War with the systemic change in international relations where it revolved around Japan's limited role in the Gulf War between 1990 to 1991. Because due to the constitutional uh, limitation um, as an ally to the United States, Japan was only able to offer financial support to to the multilateral war against Saddam Hussein. And for many, this financial um, support wasn't seen as enough. Although it was a lot of money, but it wasn't seen as enough. Um, And to a certain extent, it was basically ignored and wasn't acknowledged. So Abe was seeing all this, like, oh, we've spent a lot of money, but they're still not acknowledging us. So for him, it was like a sense of like, okay, this is not enough. Why is this happening? Um, And there was also a lot of uncertainty on what kind of support they should and should not provide during the Gulf War. And Japan then was labeled as abnormal because um, its legislation that framed the use of armed forces prevented the country from adjusting its foreign policy to a rapidly changing international environment at that time from playing an active role in the redefinition of the international order in the wake of the Cold War. So in other words, Japan was abnormal because its foreign policy almost exclusively was based on economic power so economic assistance financial assistance at that time it was judged as adequate to cope with um, the evolving east asian environment during the cold war era but the early 1990s showed that japan showed japan that this policy could rapidly become outdated in the new and more flexible international environment to return to normalcy um, abe thought that well japan had to find its place and redefine its role in the new international order, uh, which implied that there needs to be a reorientation of its foreign policy 
and the and thus the diversification of the instruments for implementing this policy would now need to include the use of force through either gradual uh, modernization of the Japanese self-defense forces, um, such as the, the development of an independent intelligence gathering system, um, a new legislation to allow for greater involvement in the UN peacekeeping missions, because even that was limited within the constitution as well. Right. So that was what exactly Abe wanted to do when he came to power in 2006 and then again um, um, in 2012. So thus the meaning of Japan being a normal country here is that the reappropriation of military as a tool for foreign policy um, and also giving more independence um, to Japanese military uh, to maneuver um, in the region. So that's what basically means by Japan being a normal country. On the show with me today is Aaron Dennison, doctoral candidate at Hiroshima University and an East Asian political commentator. After the break, I asked him about Shinzo Abe's legacy in Malaysia. Keep it here on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashran Johan and on the show with me today is Aaron Dennison, doctoral candidate at Hiroshima University and an East Asian political commentator. And we're discussing Shinzo Abe. Now, Aaron, why did Shinzo Abe fail in his first run as prime minister? After all, it was after his resignation that the opposing Democratic Party won an election again after so long. It started well. It started well. He wanted to have a better relationship with, with its neighbours, which is China and South Korea. So he had, had trips to South Korea and China in trying to mend its relationship with its neighbours. And that earned him like an approval rate of almost 60% at the time. He also gained popularity by championing the cause of a dozen of Japanese that were abducted by North Korea in the 1970s. So that made him popular. He had a vision of reforming the education system because according to him, um, it was mostly a whitewashed version of Japanese wartime history. So he was playing on this sentiment, you know, he was he was a conservative, right? Um, a, a, a right-wing conservative, you could say. Um, right. So he was playing on this kind of sentiment, which made him popular. But his authority was severely weakened with a series of scandals that led to the resignation of four of his cabinet members and another one that also committed suicide. He attempted to rectify this by trying to reshuffle, reshuffle the cabinet, which was also, which also ended badly because it was reported that his minister of agriculture um, had, um, who was leading sort of like a farmer's group within the ministry, like illegally claimed like uh, state subsidies. Then there was the LDP's defeat in the upper house elections. And it was basically sort of like a disaster. And he was one of the main things that also contributed to his failure was his ideologically driven obsession of, of reforming the Japanese constitution and right. strengthening the Japan's military. So he used this as an ideology too much that it brought him down as well, because we know that he in inherited his grandfather's legacy and this was his aim. But he forgot a few things where in Japan, one of the important policy areas that you should actually focus on um, as a prime minister is also economy. So that right. was something he didn't plan for, sort of didn't plan for when he was um, the prime minister. Um, he didn't have like an economic plan. So that was the missing piece. 
And his decline was also then complemented by his illness. And that was like sort of like the final blow of his um, administration because he, he, he became weak. Um, he was, there was pressure within the LDP lawmakers for him to resign. And it's safe to say that during his first premiership, I mean, what brought him down was his obsession of his grandfather's legacy that mm. he so wanted to achieve. He so wanted to build a new Japan that he so wanted to um, look at all the defense issues, which sort of eventually became his downfall because other issues were sort of ignored, especially the economy. And Abe's second run as Prime Minister was considered far more successful, right? Talk to me about the difference um, in his approach this time to his ideologies as well as policies. Abe, definitely his second term was I mean, more successful. I mean, that's why he became the longest serving right. Prime Minister. What's good about Abe was after the first tenure, um, you could say that it was his first time failing in life. Uh, because he has been part of a political family. What could go wrong? Nothing could go wrong. I'm the um, grandson of the former prime minister, the fa- I mean, the son of the former uh, foreign minister. I mean, what could go wrong? I can't fail. But he did fail. So the good thing about Abe is that he learned from his failure. So what he did after resigning was basically he went like, a, like on a study tour um, on, okay, maybe next I should focus on the economy, right? So he used his time to do a lot of self-study uh, about his previous failures. Um, and at that time, conveniently, um, LDP was in the opposition. Uh, so there wasn't so much of a um, being in government thing. So you can, so it's always, people always say that it's easier becoming an opposition than becoming, in, uh, you can just criticize and criticize and criticize. You don't need to do anything. So, uh, so that was also an advantage for Abe. So he took this time to do a lot of self-study and he also learned to minimize some of his right wing right wing views by dropping some of the controversial issues. So he made his comeback into the party in 2012 um, before guiding LDP to convincing win in the lower house elections in 2012. Abe was seen by the party as like one of the characters that would be able to contribute geopolitically due to his vision of resetting Japan, which he did. So domestically, Abe stands on Japan was beefing up Japan's national security policy as an escape route from the post-war regime. He wanted to transform uh, Japan from being a largely pacifist nation, living in the shadow of the World War II, to becoming a militarized, formidable great power. And of course, he wanted to amend the constitution to allow for a more independent military. So that was consistent. That didn't change whatsoever. But this time around, he took a different route by not addressing these issues directly, but rather indirectly through foreign policy and his economic plan, which is known as Abenomics. So his political compact was mostly revolving around Abenomics, where um, he wanted to kickstart economic growth through loose monetary policies, fiscal stimulus, and structural economic reforms. So thanks partly to Abenomics, um, he was able to sort of reverse years of uh, stagnant wages he boosted corporate profits, tax revenues, and increased tourist flows, in addition to sort of reducing unemployment to low records at the time. Uh, nonetheless, despite like um, economic growth, his policy fell short in some instances, um, especially with the GDP growth that averaged about just 0.9% over the course of his nearly eight years in power. And 
Abe's ambitious target of boosting nominal GDP to 600 trillion yen by 2020 at that time never materialized. Another important feature of um, Abe's of his Abenomics was his womanomics. So this was like, I mean, an acknowledgement that Japan's female labor force had been structurally and unjustifiably underused for generations. However, this again, I mean, despite there was an increase in the number of women getting senior management positions in companies, a lot of analysts and analysts actually felt that the policy the policy didn't reach its um, expected um, target. The main highlight, actually, of his premiership was actually the increasing of Japan's defense capabilities. He had already actually started the groundwork um, during his first term um, in premiership uh, when he elevated or upgraded uh, the defense agency to become a full-fledged ministry. So Japan previously didn't have a defense ministry. Um, so it was under Abe that... Um, The, it was called a defense agency. So this defense agency was then elevated to become a full-fledged ministry. And that was um, the start that Abe sort of uh, implemented. So when he came back to power in 2012, he tried to build up political capital and support to be able to change the constitution. So he did it without bulldozing it. He did it like in different ways. First, he increased the defense budget for the fiscal year in 2014. So it was, um, the it, it's the first increase in 11 years and the biggest in the past 22 years. So he did that first. Next, Abe sort of approved a resolution to his cabinet to reinterpret Article 9 of Japan's 67-year-old constitution. So the Article 9 that stipulates that Japan would forever renounce war as a sovereign right and everything. And he redefined it by putting a clause on collective self-defense. So the new cabinet resolution would remove that restriction. So it would also relax the limits on uh, Japan's activities in the United Nations peacekeeping operations and incidents um, short of war. So with him um, approving the resolution through cabinet in redefining Article 9 in 2015, this was introduced as a new security law which expanded the role of the Japanese self-defense force. So the self-defense force itself was originally for Japan to protect itself in case in the case of an attack. But the new law introduced now actually added a new criteria, whereby if Japan's survival was at stake, then Japan are allowed to deploy its self-defense forces. So how does this work in practical terms? So as we might know, Japan's defense is 100% reliant on the United States due to the Japan-US security alliance. So if the US troops, for example, are attacked by external forces, for example, in South Korea, the US troops, and then if the US troops then deploy their forces from one of the military bases in Japan to South Korea, then Japan can deploy their self-defense force because now Japan's survival is compromised because they rely on, on the United States, right? So with the US sending in their troops from Japan out to South Korea, that sort of compromises um, Japan's safety. So this is what it sort of allows um, Japan to do um, in the new um, and redefined Article 9. And surprisingly, I mean, one would say that, I mean, 
um, US might have panicked um, because all oh, Japan is going to have their, um, I mean, the Japan's military going to become more independent. But actually, um, the United States was happy about it because they are the ones that have been providing most of the support uh, to Japan. So um, for now, Japan to take an extra role in security, um, it basically reduces their burden as well um, in terms of the alliance between the two countries. Abe, at this time, he was smart uh, this time around during his second administration um, because he was more calculated um, with his political ambition because as a junior lawmaker and Japan's youngest prime minister at that time, he was very fixated emotionally of achieving his grandfather's legacy that he overlooked the importance of having an economic plan above anything um, um, sort of con- convincing the Japanese society. So this time, the second time around, he did a lot of things more calculatively um, without bulldozing through anything. So what about his foreign policies? Um, what was um, Abe's approaches to foreign policy, especially when it comes to you know, the rise of China? Um, you know, what was Japan's role then? Um, you know, and that, uh, when, we, when we look at the China versus US trade war, what, did Shinzo, what, what role did Shinzo Abe play? Um, so, well, Abe was a visionary. Um, mm-hmm. He sort of knew that there will be one day that there will be a rise of China. Um, and more importantly, he saw that how China sort of bullied its neighbours, including mm-hmm. Japan, especially after his resignation. Because after his resignation, um, there was six different prime ministers in Japan between 2007 to 2012. And this instability sort of was used by China to elevate its presence. And Abe was definitely watching this from the background. So when he came to power, one of the main motives was to counter the rise of China. And Abe sought close ties with the United States during the Obama administration, as well as fostering a close relationship with former President Donald Trump. Um, And it was important for him to be close to Donald Trump um, because he wanted to protect uh, the defense alliance between the two countries. Um, And Abe was indeed excellent as a as a diplomat, because immediately after the 2006 U.S. elections, he flew straight to New York to present the then president-elect Donald Trump with a golf golf club. That um, <laughs> and that sort of kept him in Donald Trump's good books for the remaining of his administration. Um, and another legacy which is also important uh, about Abe is he proposed the Quad in 2007 which is a regional security forum comprising of Australia, India, Japan, and the US. Um, And at that time, it didn't go far because he resigned and, you know, Quad was just stagnant. But then he played a key role in in reviving the Quad uh, that was aimed at, this time around, was aimed at blunting China's economic and military might in the Indo-Pacific region. Um, But... The court proved to be more than just a diplomatic symbolism um, because um, there was a strengthened uh, relationship and last year it held its first ever joint naval exercise, the Malabar 2020, off the south coast of India and it followed up um, in August uh, with uh, Malabar 2021 held uh, in the coast of Guam. So it sort of, from a rhetoric kind of... um, 
forum, security forum, which which all talk, it now has um, an influence and an action um, that was due to um, Abe's influence. And a uh, final one of Abe's legacy would be he is actually an architect of what we call today the free and open Indo-Pacific um, as he led the way in building coalitions to protect democracies, a rules-based order, and the rights of smaller nations. So the term Indo-Pacific is now being used widely in many st- strategic documents by many global powers. Previously, it was called the Asia-Pacific, so now it's the Indo-Pacific. So this term um, was... Um, Abe sort of like um, introduced this term um, during his first term in office, actually, uh, when he was giving a speech um, in the Indian Parliament, uh, whereby he urged the two nations to create a broader Asia um, and at the confluence of um, the two um, Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. Because according to him, both these oceans are now the center of the world instead of the Atlantic Ocean. So with this speech, he basically paved the way for the world to move into the Indo-Pacific strategy. And this idea was embraced throughout, especially by the United States during Obama, Mm -hmm. Trump, and now the Biden administration as well. So Abe was indeed like a visionary, uh, as I said earlier, and he was definitely a strategic thinker. And for India, the Indo-Pacific was sort of like an acknowledgement of them being a major power and bringing them into the foray, bringing them into the region. And it was through this strategy that they uh, were able to pull them into a lot of um, global um, conversations. So overall, it could be said that Abe was one of the great um, internationalists of his era and um, the leading architect of uh, collective security in the um, Indo-Pacific region. So those are uh, some of his um, foreign policy approaches uh, that I can elaborate. Right. So one last question, Aaron, before we wrap this conversation up. And I want to uh, hone in on Malaysia um, because we know Malaysia and, and Japan um, have ties a- as well. What should Malaysians, like why should Malaysians learn about Shinzo Abe? I mean, what was his legacy here? Um, for Malaysia, I mean, under her, uh, Abe's administration, uh, Malaysia-Japan relations was elevated. So from an enhanced partnership. Um, Originally, this was um, under the DPJ government in 2010 to it was elevated to a strategic partnership in 2015. Um, So this strategic partnership included collaborations in the area of peace and stability, um, economics, maritime security, people-to-people ties, and regional and global cooperation. And the most notable collaboration at that time uh, was when Japan and Malaysia agreed to begin talks on the transfer of defense equipment and technology, as well as collaboration in maritime security. So this ties in well uh, with um, Japan's uh, or Abe's uh, vision of making sure that Japan becomes a military power. Um, right. And Malaysia was actually the first Southeast Asian country which uh, Japan had launched the negotiation in this regard, in this area, as um, on the transfer of defense equipment and um, technology. And when Najib visited Japan in 2006, um, 
And it was during this meeting that Japan agreed to provide two used Coast Guard patrol vessels to the Malaysia's Maritime Enforcement Agency. Um, and the vessel would be provided at no, at no cost um, and it would be transferred to Malaysia during the first half of 2017. It did arrive. Uh, I have to put a note there. It did arrive <laughs> along with the necessary training and support. So the deal sort of represented deepening security relationship between Malaysia and Japan that never sort of happened uh, previously, but it sort of happened under the Abe administration with mm-hmm. both countries at that time sharing concerns geopolitically of uh, China's maritime assertiveness um, in East Asia Sea and East China Sea as well as the South China Sea. So um, so that was one of um, Abe's legacy that we could remember, I mean, in Malaysia, the, the, the increased partnership in terms of security. Finally, another significant event that Malaysia maybe should know about is Abe was actually the latest high-profile figure from Japan to visit Malaysia when he did so in March 2022 as Prime Minister Kishida's special envoy to Malaysia in conjunction with the 40th anniversary of uh, Malaysia's Look East policy and the 65th anniversary of Malaysia-Japan relations. So just a note on, a short note on that. On that note, thank you so much for joining me today, Aaron. Thank you so much for having me, Ashley. That was Aaron Dennison. He's a doctoral candidate at Hiroshima University. He's also an East Asian political commentator. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can check us out on podcasts where available on the BFM app, bfm.my or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Darshan Johan and this has been Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.